Hello, I'm Melissa with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Am Johal is joined by Anthony Pearl, an SFU Urban Studies prof and co-author of Big Moves, Global Agendas, Local Aspirations, and Urban Mobility in Canada. They talk policy issues in urban mobility and transportation infrastructure across major Canadian cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. We are joined this week by Anthony Pearl from the Urban Studies Program at Simon Fraser University, where he's a professor and also former member of the Planning Commission at the City of Vancouver. Uh, Welcome, Anthony. Thank you, uh, Am. Uh, as a fellow uh, planning commissioner, it's great to uh, be talking with you today. Great. Uh, so, so I'm wondering if you can just introduce yourself uh, a little bit. Sure. I, uh, I'm an immigrant, uh, and not that new new Canadian. I came here uh, to Toronto in 1984 to uh, do my, um, at that time, my master's degree in urban politics. I was really interested in what had made Toronto in the mid-1980s such a successful city, and it seemed like urban transportation was one of the leading factors, and I liked it so much and was lucky enough to uh, stay on. So after uh, my PhD in Toronto, I moved to uh, West, to uh, Calgary in 1993, and taught there for 12 years, and then came to SFU in 2005 to be the first full-time director of the Urban Studies program, and I've been happily beavering away here uh, ever since. And when I came here, uh, one of the uh, people I met through uh, the Urban Studies program early on was Matt Hearn, who's my co-author on this book. So um, this book connects to my uh, journey into uh, and through Canada very well, I think. So the book is called Big Moves. You you collaborated with Matt and another author. So maybe if you could just talk a little bit about where the book project was conceived, what got you started? Well, it really did begin with my first home in Toronto uh, in, in Canada. When I moved up there, um, Peter Ustinov, for whatever reason, had made a celebrated quote, which stuck with me and is still, you can find it on the internet. He said, Toronto was like New York City run by the Swiss. It seemed to be a a city in the mid-1980s that had everything going for it. And it was most obvious to me as a sort of a transportation geek uh, person in their uh, excellent streetcars and subway system, clean, punctual, frequent, um, and very effective in getting people around the city. Toronto, of course, was also the home of Jane Jacobs, who I met uh, during my time there. And she had gotten there just in time to stop building the uh, downtown expressway uh, uh, infrastructure that would have destroyed the area around the university and Chinatown and some other key neighborhoods in the city. So Toronto seemed to have been a place that had put the pause on expressway building and had its public transportation at a globally uh, high standard at that point. And I also, over time, of course, moving west, uh, but also moving and, and traveling around Canada, began to notice that Montreal and Vancouver, the other, the next two biggest cities, were very distinct places in terms of urban form and urban mobility in particular. Montreal had a rubber-tired uh, Parisian-style metro system, 
And Vancouver, of course, had the unique at that time uh, SkyTrain, the automated linear induction powered uh, system that was kind of homegrown. And it led me to wonder, and then of course, each city had a different mix of expressways as well. Led me to wonder why and how Canada's three largest cities had gone in such different directions when developing their urban major mobility infrastructure. And um, I got on I got on to other things in uh, my career as a political scientist and public policy scholar. But eventually, after settling in here in Vancouver and after wrapping up my term as director of the Urban Studies Program, it seemed time to try and explain that. And fortunately, Matt Hearn, who I'd gotten to know here, was very um, willing to uh, collaborate on, on that project. And my other co-author, Jeff Kenworthy, is one of the world's leading experts in terms of urban mobility data and uh, data analysis. So we had a great team. Matt being able to look at the community-based ways in which cities encounter these major infrastructure plans and projects. Jeff being able to put it in a global perspective as to where Canada as a whole sort of stands and myself looking at the policy and governance dynamics uh, behind this. Uh, and that's how the book came together. So uh, I wonder if we can maybe jump into each of these cities a little bit. Uh, right now, when you um, we talk about the city of Toronto from a kind of urbanism point of view, there's a lot of discussions around the lack of investment in infrastructure or crumbling infrastructure oftentimes gets mentioned related to Toronto in terms of um, the kinds of investments that are that are needed. How would you characterize kind of the state of play right now in terms of its public transportation system? Sure. Well, Toronto is playing catch-up, and um, it's, I think, uh, going to get there eventually, but it shows that it's very easy to rest on one's laurels and uh, fall behind um, the need for sustainable urban transportation and very hard and time-consuming to catch up uh, on it. The book's major thesis is that there are two dimensions, it's sort of a dialectic, that are constantly in tension in terms of cities and their sort of major mobility uh, aspirations and impacts. One is the uh, relationship between the city and global circuits of capital and other flows that are going on. And Toronto, of course, became Canada's alpha city in the uh, 1980s, just around the time uh, I got there. And then the other part of the equation is the um, the local community um, visions and uh, uh, values that may be in tension, particularly when it involves inserting major infrastructure into urban spaces, and cities negotiate uh, that. And I think what happened in Toronto was that um, the uh, global dynamic went into overdrive after free trade and then NAFTA, where Toronto really became Canada's global gateway hub, uh, which it was just starting in the mid-1980s. It took uh, another five or 10 years, but that really made our financial sector the global gateway uh, in Toronto. And most of the foreign uh, companies that came in, particularly American ones, set up their Canadian headquarters in and around the greater Toronto uh, area. All of that produced huge inflows of um, population and demand for mobility. And it was at about that time also that a small C or maybe a large C conservative uh, government at the provincial level and at the city level, small C conservative, um, dialed back 
on ambitious plans for urban transportation infrastructure. So that imbalance kind of led Toronto to fall behind. I mean, they, they've added another million people or maybe more, a million and a half people since I lived there and very little transportation infrastructure. And not surprisingly, that leads to gridlock and frustration and uh, a real deficit in mobility in, in that area. So they're in catch-up mode. They've been building slowly, uh, but uh, it's going to take them time to get back uh, to where they might have been had that relationship between the global and the local um, worked differently in the 1990s and early 2000s. Yeah, and in areas of Toronto that are going through uh, rapid growth, like the Peel region, Brampton, uh, other suburbs in and around Toronto, um, how do you think the city has sort of dealt with the uh, the growth of the of the suburbs, or or what is is lacking in the in the present infrastructure that that isn't keeping up with what other cities are are doing around the world? Well, when uh, when I was uh, in grad school in Toronto, the uh, chief planner for the Toronto Transit Commission, who's gone on to become a corporate uh, finance uh, executive, uh, Yuri Pill, coined the term for Toronto uh, spatially as Vienna surrounded by Phoenix. And when that was um, said for the first time, because I was there at the time, it wasn't said as ironically as it might sound to the, uh, those people hearing it for the first time today. It was actually said with a, a form of achievement, like Toronto had proven somehow that you could square the circle and have your cake and eat it too. Those people who wanted to live in a dense, diverse, mixed-use, sort of Jane Jacobs paradise of Vienna-style urbanism could live in downtown Toronto or in some of the other lovely neighborhoods in the city uh, or even the metro at that time um, area of Toronto. But then those who wanted to live in Phoenix and have big yards and uh, extra rooms for uh, kids uh, to sleep over in and all that sort of stuff could live in the suburban areas in Peel and Brampton and Mississauga and um, Oakville and those types of places. And it seemed like um, in the sort of Id idealized Canadian uh, world where, um, you know, we uh, uh, live and let live, everyone could have what they wanted. You could have suburbs and for people who wanted that lifestyle and cities, and they all coexisted. The problem was that equilibrium only lasted maybe at most a decade. And then it turned out that no, uh, they're actually not that compatible. And uh, Phoenix begins to strangle Vienna, literally uh, in terms of air pollution, but also figuratively in terms of costs of uh, trying to supply uh, sustainable transportation. Because if you stop and think about it, if you had that Vienna surrounded by Phoenix metaphor continue, which sort of has in these greater Toronto area communities, to adequately serve people's mobility needs in a landscape that has both Vienna and Phoenix juxtaposed right against each other, you actually need to provide twice the infrastructure um, because you need both the expressways, the uh, road system for the uh, Phoenix part, and then you need to add in the rapid transit trams and metros for the Vienna part. And that actually turns out to be a fiscally unsustainable formula. You can't have Vienna and Phoenix without paying at least double for the kinds of infrastructure that's needed to allow for effective mobility. So the challenge that they're having, especially in the greater Toronto area beyond the city's boundaries right now, is how to adapt Phoenix to maybe not be Vienna, but at least to be more of 
um, sort of the uh, suburbs of uh, Vienna as opposed to Phoenix. And that means, you know, electric rail, um, which they are developing. Uh, the GO train system is going to become much more of a transit style operation with frequent services and electric trains. And they're spending many tens of billions of dollars on this, which shows that the, the retrofitting of Phoenix is not cheap. But And it's going to take another 10 to 20 years to, to build that out. But I think that they have um, made the commitment to do that. And hopefully we will see that uh, the greater Toronto region will start to look more like Vienna or Berlin or Paris in the sense that even the suburban lower and middle density areas have sustainable options for not just having the automobile as your only way to get anywhere, which still is the case, unfortunately, in a lot of these communities. Yeah, Toronto oftentimes gets uh, compared very favorably to Chicago and might be just a proximity to the Midwest or some sort of friendly version of New York. <laughs> I'm wondering around um, in Montreal, which, you know, of the three cities has also maintained a kind of affordability of housing prices and rental prices, that there's a kind of inflection in inside its own transportation system, but also its uh, connections to France as well in terms of types and modalities and approaches to public transport. Wondering if you could talk a little bit about, you know, the formation of Montreal and its sort of transportation choices. Well, Montreal was the alpha city of Canada in the 20, the first half of the middle part of the 20th century. And by that, I mean, it was our global gateway to both Europe and the United States. That was where, you know, the uh, banks had their headquarters before separatism scared them uh, down the uh, highway to uh, Toronto. It's where the uh, stock exchange and uh, other corporations had their headquarters. It was the only city in Canada to have the United Nations uh, agency headquarters, the International Civil Aviation Organization, which you usually only hear about when there's plane crashes or terrible things that happen, but it does a lot of regulation globally uh, in aviation. Anyway, Montreal up through the mid-1970s or early 1970s, I guess the October crisis uh, uh, might be an inflection point, was this global um, sort of gateway for Canada. It feels like the Olympics were like the last hurrah for Montreal, at least in, in that vein. <laughs> That's right. And it started with an expo uh, in 67, of course. And there, there was a playbook that Vancouver, we'll talk about, maybe has uh, read and uh, adapted, but was invented in, uh, in Montreal. One of the things about Canadian infra urban infrastructure that is unique uh, in, in the major countries that we're often compared with in Europe, United States, Australia, is that for constitutional reasons, the federal government has been basically self-isolating in this uh, case. We don't have a, a national transportation, um, urban transportation program the way most countries do that the feds fund consistently and have regulations and rules and standards for. We don't have a national urban program. It's much more ad hoc. And in our view, one of the things that that does is it leads to a much more open and unmediated relationship between the global and the local. In France, in Germany, in the United States, you have the national government that keeps an eye on cities and sort of says what the, some of the rules and regulations are when they build and uh, do things. And in Canada, each time a city has decided to do something major, a big move, let's say, it's an open book. And they construct a, a plan and a formula and then 
negotiate the funding at the national and, and provincial levels and um, go accordingly. And what Mayor Jean Drapeau in uh, Montreal in the 1960s figured out how to do was to take a global, global mega event like the Expo and then an encore of the Olympics and turn it into a vehicle to fund and, and implement mega projects like the metro system and others, uh, the Olympic Stadium. There's uh, Some of them are seen as white elephants. Others are quite functional. But um, during his uh, reign, and I would call it that uh, because he was sort of a very established political leader during that time, he was able to come up with a municipally-led urban development policy in Canada that kind of dragged the province and the feds in to do things that in other countries they would have set up frameworks and programs from a top-down kind of approach. And the way it worked was pretty simple. You put these bids out for these mega events and buried in the fine print, there's commitments to build infrastructure like metros, like uh, stadiums, like convention centers and things like that. And then you go and get the expo committee or the Olympic committee with probably a few bribes and other things to uh, vote you, you know, accept and award you these uh, big events. And then you go into um, cabinet uh, tables and negotiations with premiers and prime ministers and say, you know, the world is coming. The world is coming to Montreal in 1967, and we promised them a metro and a stadium and these other things. Do you really want them to show up to uh, not have this stuff here? That'll make us look pretty bad. And all of a sudden, the checkbooks figuratively start to come out. And this was what Montreal did uh, in the 1960s and up through the uh, 76 uh, Olympics that put their infrastructure on another level and got those big moves for better and for worse. It also involved building some nasty urban expressways, nasty in the sense that they destroyed very vibrant communities. And the people there really had no um, chance to um, I mean, they resisted uh, bravely and made all the same arguments that were going on in Gastown and Strathcona and Chinatown here in Vancouver. The difference was that once you had it built into your Olympic plan and the world was coming, that was a huge global cudgel that was used to sort of push through the bulldozers literally in these neighborhoods. So they got expressways and metro. And as a result, Montreal is the most fully built out urban mobility infrastructure in Canada. It's got a completely developed expressway system, including some nasty ones through downtown areas. And it's got a com re relatively well-developed metro system. And Toronto has a half-built expressway system that stopped in the mid-1970s and a half-built rapid transit system that they slowed down after the 1980s uh, building. And Vancouver, of course, has um, almost no expressway system, but there's a tiny one, which I'll talk about if you want, and our SkyTrain uh, and rapid transit system. So Montreal went the furthest and built the most urban mobility major infrastructure in its uh, city of any Canadian city. And that's because I think they were able to figure out this formula to uh, sign up for global mega events and then use that to um, leverage or uh, intimidate uh, senior levels of government to follow what they wanted to do.
Do you think that the building out of the system in Montreal in the context that you talk about, does it relate or doesn't it relate somehow to the affordability question there? There's something to do with uh, the culture of Quebec that has a more social democratic orientation more consistently, but there's something about the affordability of the city, both in terms of home ownership, renters, tenancy rights that relate to these neighborhoods that's very different than the orientation of Toronto and Vancouver? Well, I I think that that nationalism has to be seen to play a part in it, along with social democratic values and politics. And it's a very murky uh, intersection between nationalism and socialism. We know what happens when you put national socialism together. And that's not good. But Quebec has those ingredients and has managed to, fortunately, I think, um, combine them in a slightly less nefarious, more than slightly less nefarious way, actually a very progressive way in many circumstances in the ways that you described. I think it was easier for two reasons. One was that thanks to the municipally led mega project mania that Mayor Drapeau um, was the architect of, Montreal did build out a global infrastructure, a globally appropriate infrastructure that would fit with being Canada's global financial hub and center. And then at the same time, all those separatists and uh, people who were busy um, blowing up mailboxes and kidnapping and unfortunately murdering uh, government officials scared the rest of Canada's Anglo um, financial leaders into fleeing the city for Toronto. And then NAFTA came along after that. So if you put all that together, you get Montreal being the city that actually built itself up to be Canada's global anchor and hub and had all the accoutrements and the infrastructure available for that at the same time as the economic actors got sort of um, the vapors from all that nationalism and some of the terrorism that was associated with it. And then the economy shifted its center of gravity away from the city. It's a bit like Vienna in the sense that Vienna was the capital of a global empire in its day, and then that didn't continue. The Austro-Hungarian empire was over with, and that left a city that had been built out to be an imperial capital with a lot of space and a lot less pressure and a lot less sort of global um, forces to impose top-down values on the communities. And as a result, the communities were able to build up a much more social purpose values in the policies and programs for the space that was left. And I think that happened in both Vienna and in Montreal. And it's not a coincidence that they're both much more livable and affordable places as a result of that legacy. So uh, here in in Vancouver, a city that we both live in, there's certainly a little bit of that story from Montreal in terms of an expo and an Olympics. Certainly both of those events are tied to rising inequality and uh, increasing housing prices. But for transportation, they were both quite prominent investment vehicles uh, tied to those events that have uh, structured and shaped. But uh, I guess prior to that as well, transportation choices like not having a freeway come through the city, but you know, different forms of it um, exist, as you said. But I'm uh, wondering if you can talk a little bit about sort of historically how we came to be the way that we are and, and what are now some features of uh, Vancouver's transportation that are quite unique to the, the city and the region. Sure. 
Well, Vancouver was affected by the same global forces that uh, had their role in Toronto and in Montreal, but at different times and with different mixes of the um, engagement and the um, conflict and resolution of that conflict with the local values and, and aspirations. During this pandemic, I've been spending a lot of time wandering around Stanley Park because I live near it. Uh, that's my sort of backyard uh, these days. And when we wrote the book, we used, by, by the way, this book is the first one to actually add up the uh, specific infrastructure and the costs of it in these three cities during the 20th century. Like how much did it cost to build the Montreal Metro? The only place that I know, because we looked, that you can find that is in this book. How much did it cost to build um, Gardner Expressway uh, in Toronto? Same thing. It says something about Canada's urban ambivalence that we never really put all that, no one ever bothered to put all that together. But anyway, when we started doing that with Vancouver and getting back to Stanley Park, if you go by the Transport Association of Canada's definition of what an urban expressway is, limited access, no traffic lights, you know, no cross streets, and certain geometric design functions, the very first expressway that was ever built in Canada is the euphemistically named Stanley Park Causeway that goes from Denman Street to North Vancouver across the Lionsgate Bridge. That was built in the 1930s, early 1930s, and it is about four kilometers worth of urban expressway through the cathedral of our city's green consciousness. And when I've been wandering around Stanley Park, I, I've taken the interior trails a lot this uh, last six months. You can hear it. You know, uh, it's, it's well hidden visually, uh, fortunately, because of all the great uh, tree uh, cover in the park. But you hear an expressway in the heart of Stanley Park, uh, all these cars and trucks uh, zooming by continuously. I mean, I don't go there at two in the morning. Maybe it's quiet uh, then. But during the times that I'm there, we built that and we built it for a global purpose. The Guinness family came and bought huge amounts of land which were bankrupt. Uh, the, the city of West Vancouver had taken them back for tax arrears and they bought them in a great deal for them. And it was then euphemistically called the British Properties. And of course, if you wanted to develop all those mansions um, in the British Properties, you had to be able to give people a quick a route to downtown so they could work in their offices. And that's what the Stanley Park Causeway and the Lionsgate Bridge, which was funded directly by the Guinness family, global capital. In was fact, all during, during uh, Expo 86, uh, Grace McInnes, who was uh, a minister at the time, uh, went to the Guinness family to get them to fund the uh, lights um, on the Lionsgate Bridge, I think as the story goes, and it was known as Gracie's Necklace. <laughs> I briefly worked in highways in the late 90s when the bridge was being uh, renovated at the time, deck by deck. And so a lot of that history was was coming through in the process of it. It was just fascinating, but there were actually literally pieces of that bridge falling off at that time. Right, because you know the, the value of the bridge to the Guinness family was in selling off the properties in West Vancouver. And once they sold off more than half of them, uh, it was much better to give the bridge, I think they sold it to the province for a dollar or some $10 or some, and then, of course, the maintenance and rehabilitation costs would become public along the way. That's a perfect example of how the global and local um, dynamics of major mobility infrastructure work uh, when you have no national program. I mean, you can't imagine um, 
the Guinness or any other family, uh, you know, building the uh, Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, you know, or places like that similarly. The national and other governments had these frameworks in place that would not have allowed it. Here it was a blank slate. You want to build a bridge to connect your properties and you're willing to pay for it? Well, sure, we'll chop down, you know, uh, 10% of Stanley Park and put a highway through that for you. We'll call it a causeway and put lots of trees around it so no one sees it and everyone will be happy. And um, that's what happened in our very first encounter between the global and the local in uh, Vancouver. Um, but then I think the um, dynamics changed, of course, and the plans to develop uh, the Strathcona Chinatown Expressway and turn basically the waterfront in uh, downtown Vancouver, where Gastown and uh, SFU's Harbor Center campuses into an expressway to feed huge mega towers. That was a globally prominent idea, but it was rejected because of very active and uh, effective community resistance. The difference was, compared to the Montreal community resistance, was that they didn't have an Olympics or uh, an expo at that time in the 1970s to uh, use as leverage to push the, that sort of stuff through. Fortunately, they hadn't read Montreal's playbook yet. But by the 1980s, or maybe the late 1970s, we had a generation of municipal and provincial politicians, um, including Mike Harcourt, who was one of the people who helped stop uh, legally uh, resist the uh, downtown expressway, who had a bigger picture perspective and realized that, yeah, Montreal got a lot for uh, its infrastructure by doing these kinds of global uh, mega projects, mega events leading to mega projects. The difference was when we signed up for the expo, there was no chance anymore of building a downtown um, expressway. So the uh, mega project was the SkyTrain, and that's how our rapid transit got started again with a global mega event. And then, of course, the um, global mega event sequel, just like Montreal, if you get the expo and it works well, go for the Olympics, which we did along with Whistler. There it was a little bit more of a mixed blessing. The global mega project in Vancouver was the um, Canada Line, which runs uh, to Richmond and the airport. That was built into the Olympic package. But then we also built a big expansion, basically turned the Sea to Sky Highway into a, an expressway outside of metro area going up to Whistler. And, and that's that an interesting question of, of opportunity costs as well, because what some of these mega events do, although it does leverage some federal money that wouldn't otherwise uh, be there, we had uh, Jack Poole go into a, a meeting of cabinet to say that this needed to be funded. And what probably wouldn't have been in the top 10 of transportation projects all of a sudden got pushed forward and uh, that investment came through. I think that the RAV line was already on the books and probably would have happened anyway, but certainly the Sea to Sky Highway was uh, something that was definitely fast-tracked by the Olympics and in terms of uh, opportunity. And interestingly, when the SkyTrain was built during Expo, you know, it did go out to Scott Road. There was a couple of uh, additions uh, put in later, but there wasn't really an expansion until the Millennium Line in the, in the late 90s and then later the RAV Line. And just with some of the older systems in, in Toronto with the subway and in, in Montreal with their subway, it doesn't seem to, it's an, it's an expensive infrastructure. It's built sort of above ground predominantly. The RAV line was below ground. But the, the complexity of a, a system that needs to be around the region for it to be functional 
in the way that other geographic centers or cities with a deeper history of building them do. There's there's limitations to what has happened in Vancouver, and partly it's an issue of time and the age of the city, I suppose. We've been building about one rapid transit line per decade in the region, the Expo line in the 80s, the Millennium Line in the 90s, the Canada Line in the 2000s, I guess you, if you count the Evergreen extension in the 2010s. Uh, we're, we've done one per decade. Two out of the five have been tied directly to global mega events, the Olympics and Expo, and we've somehow managed to scrape together the money for the other bits and pieces ourselves. But we are going to need um, to do it differently uh, going forward. Um, the book sort of ends at uh, 2002 or so in terms of collecting the data, which was no mean feat because in countries that have national urban transportation programs, you can go online, like for the U.S. right now, if you want to see how much was spent to build you know, a, a metro line in Los Angeles or Portland or something like that and find it in 15 seconds if you're good at searching. In Canada, what it requires is going through municipal, provincial, and sometimes federal budgets line by line and finding all the places where they did their specific, you know, one-off deals like you described with Jack Poole and the cabinet um, to put together these financing packages. And so we did it through the 20th century. It took a PhD student uh, of mine, Michael Oram, who we gave credit for in the appendix of the book, over a year, and he had some help with some other research assistants. But anyway, the, the, point, the point, I guess, uh, is that it's been a bigger struggle in Canada to put together these uh, major infrastructure programs because we're more set up for one-off projects. And when you build you know, the uh, Canada line or the Millennium line, once that's done, it doesn't have any kind of follow-on or programmatic structure that keeps in place. We just shut it down, cut the ribbon, and that's the end of it. And then you have to start from scratch. That takes years, like doing the um, SkyTrain extension along Broadway, and now Mayor Kennedy Stewart talking about extending it to UBC. Each one of those projects is like buying made-to-measure clothing. It fits tailored to whatever your waste and uh, other dimensions are at that particular moment in time, but it's more expensive doing it that way and more time consuming than just buying off the rack type clothing. And other cities in countries with national programs can do the off the rack stuff. In, in China right now, in Beijing and Shanghai, which have the world's largest urban metro systems, and I'm not saying biggest is necessarily best, but there they just don't stop. When they finish building one line, they keep the same people, the same equipment and the same organization going and start building the next one. Here, when we finish building something, we pat ourselves on the back and then wait and start a few years later saying, well, what do we do next? And it starts all over again. That's a um, not a terribly efficient or effective way to develop urban infrastructure, which maybe we'll have to evolve from. But how we do that will be interesting to figure out. Now, uh, I know it's it's obviously uh, beyond the, the scope of the book, but if we were to read historically into the situation with the mayor of Surrey coming in and wanting to move away from a streetcar system to SkyTrain, that was interesting how that played out because there seemed to be a general consensus around uh, streetcars and then a, a move to SkyTrain that would extend eventually to, to Langley. It'd be interesting to get your take on what you think is happening there. 
Well, I think Mayor McCallum, he might not appreciate my uh, analogy. I think he's channeling Jean Drapeau from uh, the great beyond uh, there. What he's saying is that, you know, Surrey is going to be a globally important alpha city someday, and we deserve the top tier rapid transit infrastructure. No, you know, uh, Tunerville streetcar for us. We want SkyTrain just like Vancouver. We want to have a metro type rapid transit system for the city that we aspire to uh, grow into, a, a global gateway for the region. You know, they're always talking about how they're going to have more people than Vancouver. And in our, our book, we do say that, you know, the 21st century seems to belong to what Matt coins the uh, canaburbs, these um, globally connected suburban areas, which actually become quite diverse and urbanized and actually could well be Canada's greatest connection to the uh, sort of global um, urban networks that are out there, more so than the early, uh, uh, you know, initial downtown cores like Vancouver or Toronto. So in that sense, Mayor McCallum is trying to um, say Surrey will not take second tier status anymore. We want the uh, most expensive, most uh, deluxe form of rapid transit that we have in the region. The problem is that uh, the streetcar system that had been planned was three times, two and a half times more coverage because it was much cheaper to build at grade in the street medians and uh, using that ground space than the SkyTrain uh, is, and a few other <clears throat> technical reasons too uh, as well. SkyTrain is a very expensive transportation infrastructure. It does great things, but it's not cheap. And so they're going to get much less. Uh, right now, they can only afford half of the uh, extension to Langley. It'll get to Fleetwood, I guess. And um, it's going to require the province to, uh, and, and maybe the feds to put some big checks uh, in, in up to keep it uh, going. And maybe that will happen. Maybe Mayor McCallum or his colleagues uh, will come up with the same alchemy that Mayor Drapeau did and figure out how do you leverage the uh, senior governments to uh, get them to fund your grand plans for infrastructure. But that's the way I see it. And if you take it in this, you know, big moves context from the book, that Surrey is saying they want, they won't settle for second class infrastructure. They want the big ticket, high priced SkyTrain or nothing. And uh, they're getting at least some of that uh, as a result. You know, there, there are things that have been put on the table or trial ballooned are now being taken seriously like a potential uh, gondola to, to Burnaby Mountain. But I'm wondering from your perspective, if a streetcar system were to land down somewhere in the Metro Vancouver region with you know, you being a transportation expert, where do you think would be an interesting place to, to try it out just to sort of uh, function beyond the modalities we, we've, we've used so far? Right. Well, uh, I, I have a, I have to declare a conflict of interest because I live in Coal Harbor and there was a plan which unfortunately got politicized a couple of mayoral elections ago because Susan Anton uh, put it forward as uh, her project for running for mayor and she didn't win and the other side uh, vision didn't really um, see much value in it politically as a result. But there's a, a downtown streetcar that would run from very close to outside my window through downtown, Gastown, Chinatown, then it would sort of uh, head west and go along False Creek South all the way to Granville uh, Island, Science World, and, you know, Olympic Village, that area. We had a little test of that during the Olympics. It was, uh, I didn't win a lot of friends or influence people by saying, 
we, we borrowed uh, streetcars from Brussels, Belgium. We actually traded them for Olympics tickets. Our government, uh, I don't know whether it was the province or the city, you know, gave uh, the uh, council in Brussels a huge whack of front row seats to various Olympic events. And they gave us two streetcars built by, by Bombardier for six months straight from the production line before they were going to be put into service in Brussels. They're probably riding around Brussels as we speak uh, right now. But they came here first and they set up the Olympic streetcar, which ran from Olympic Village to Granville Island during the Olympics. It was a great success. The feds put in $8 million, if I recall right, either six or eight million to rehabilitate the tracks that run along South Falls Creek there. And some of the SFU students in our program volunteered. They, they, since it was totally outside of uh, TransLink, this was done as a sweet, generous kind of uh, an operation for the Olympics. They was all volunteer. They didn't hire drivers or anything, but they would train people to drive the streetcar as volunteers. And a couple of our students did uh, do that. So SFU is actually contributing to this event. And uh, at the end of it, as I said, I didn't win friends by saying this was the equivalent at least when I was growing up, of putting on airs. You, when you went on a hot date with someone, if you didn't have a fancy car, you would borrow someone else's car and then pretend it was yours for the date to try and impress who you were dating. And uh, the same thing happened here during the Olympics. While the Olympics was there, we built this beautiful streetcar line. We borrowed these streetcars from Brussels and pretended they were ours. And as soon as the date was over, we had to give them back. And that was the end of it, unfortunately. But I think it showed that a downtown streetcar project could work very well. And uh, it would be a great place to try it out in the city. I think the infrastructure, the right of way is still there. Unfortunately, I think it's been left to rust in peace since that period. So it probably needs some rehabilitation. But I think that you know, um, major cities in the world, global cities, wind up using more than one form of public transit infrastructure. You don't say, do we build a SkyTrain or a streetcar? You say, how do we build a system that has all of these different technologies in the right places to create the alternatives for sustainable mobility? So someday, I don't know if I'll live long enough, or you too for that matter, I hope you do, we will have streetcars, rapid transit, electric buses, electric cars, and a total package of uh, sustainable mobility options in our region, but it's gonna take a while to get there. My prediction, North Vancouver will try streetcars at some point in the future. Just a wild guess. <laughs> they, they had them along the waterfront back in the day. It would make a great possibility, and uh, I, I agree. Uh, that would be another great place to put it in, and maybe there I don't have a conflict of interest, so I'd, I'd uh, be happy to ride that one too. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. The book is called Big Moves. It's in the description on our podcast site. And uh, hopefully you get a chance to, our audience members get a chance to read it. But this was a great walk through these three big cities. And I really look forward to reading the book myself. Thanks, Sam. It was a pleasure. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with SFU urbanist and transportation policy pro, Anthony Pro. Read more about Anthony and find the link to his new book in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>